This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are quickly coming up on the soybean growth stage where nutrient deficiency symptoms become more apparent. Soybeans really start to pull in and use nutrients during the R2 to R3 stages or during flowering. Soybeans have a long flowering and pod setting period and in times it can change based upon the actual weather conditions. It is during this period that nutrient issues that were present before begin to show in the foliage. Phosphorus deficiency can be an issue in soybeans, but potassium problems are more likely in dry years. Potassium plays an important role in plants, and soybeans need huge quantities of it. During drought, the potassium is pumped out of the stomata cells, closing the leaf pore so less water is transpired, and the plant wilts to protect itself during dry weather. Potassium is also very mobile within the plants and can, in a way, leak out of the soybeans back into the soil during drought. Potassium moves into the plant roots by water solution, so during drought, potassium deficiency problems are compounded. Potassium deficiency causes yellowing on leaf edges that can eventually die back. It will occur first on the older leaves. The times that I've seen potassium issues in the field, besides the dry weather, it is usually associated with very high or very low pH soils. This is also true with iron deficiency. Around here, high pH soils can occur, usually in a strip along the north or south side of a gravel road. Farmers often think it is disease or herbicide drift creeping into the field, but is often potassium or iron deficiency. In years with flood or drought cycle, it can make nitrogen and sulfur deficiency more likely as well. The nitrogen deficiency is more likely because rhizobium fixation is difficult when roots are underwater and stressed. Other reasons for rhizobia to fail to inoculate soybean roots is because too much nitrogen in the soil during planting. This makes the soybeans think that it doesn't need the rhizobia when in fact it really does, or in areas of low pH, where rhizobia bacteria have a hard time surviving. In some cases, it was because there was no rhizobium bacteria present in the soil and the seeds weren't inoculated before planting. However it happened, the soybeans will look just fine in the early season and then suddenly become yellowing during flowering. Nitrogen deficiency will cause a yellowing of the older leaves, but plants can be carefully dug, not pulled, and inspected for healthy, internally pink or white soybean root nodules. Sulfur deficiency is possible even in more heavy clay soils because of high soybean need for sulfur. Most sulfur comes from organic matter turnover, but there are times when applications of 10 pounds of sulfur per acre could help. Unfortunately, years with dry soils during the critical flowering period make soybean nutrient problems more likely. Potassium, phosphorus, and sulfur will be the most likely nutrients deficient in the soil, and nitrogen deficiency is possible in soybeans for the ones that were never nodulated properly. The micronutrient molybdenum and boron can also be a problem in eastern Kansas, but there has been less proven research for their yield response. Nutrient problems are identified in three ways, by looking at the plant symptoms, taking a soil test, and by taking a leaf tissue sample. Tissue samples are taken at the top trifoliate leaf of at least 30 plants during the flowering, and in long season beans, we are coming up on that time frame now. If you suspect nutrient issues in your field, please give me a call. The number is 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, livestock production agent for the Wildcat District. Wendy Powell, your livestock production agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Ticks transmit many microbial disease agents to livestock and companion animals. They can be debilitating and sometimes fatal to the host. 
All stages of ticks are exclusively parasitic. Ticks will take three blood meals throughout development from three different hosts. Ticks have remarkably long lives with many surviving for a year or more without refeeding. The American dog tick is a major pest and is a carrier of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Adults are most abundant in late spring and early summer. The Rocky Mountain wood tick attacks livestock and wildlife. They are the primary carrier of Rocky Mountain spotted fever and Colorado tick fever virus. The Lone Star tick is one of the most notorious tick species across the U.S. All stages of the tick attack companion animals, livestock, wildlife, and humans. Deer are the primary hosts for adults. It takes two years to complete development from an egg to reproductive adult. Much of this time is spent off the animal host, sheltered in leaf litter, mostly in shrubby areas. The Gulf Coast tick attacks a wide range of birds and mammals, but the adults feed mostly on ruminants. Gulf Coast ticks feed mainly on the head and ears and can cause severe injury to the skin, rendering the hide useless from bites and secondary infections. Spinos ear ticks frequently infest livestock, especially cattle and horses. While adults don't feed, the young feed in the host's ears, causing injury to the auditory canal and secondary infections. The Asian longhorn tick, newly discovered in the continental U.S., can lead to reduced production and even death by anemia due to their ability to reproduce without a male. Historically, ticks and their diseases have been controlled by acariocides, but slowly, many ticks are becoming resistant to the commonly used pesticides. Vaccines have been shown to be effective in other countries, but are not yet usable in the U.S. Early removal of attached ticks is important in minimizing the risk of contracting tick-borne diseases. Prescribed burning as a pasture management tool provides another option, eliminating ticks of all stages not on the host by destroying their hiding spots. Ticks need cover to prevent drying out from heat. Prescribed burns are carried out to improve the number of rangeland conditions, like weed suppression and improved forage quality. Early season tick counts measured April to June at the K-State Beef Stalker Unit have shown that burns will significantly impact tick populations, particularly if the burn is carried out in the spring, before tick emergence after overwintering. This study also found that ticks do not travel far once detached from the host, so shrubby areas will lead to local pockets with higher tick densities. To learn more about parasite control in livestock, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a Dave Strauss, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Record keeping may not be one of your favorite parts of raising sheep or goats, but it is a necessary task. As producers, start to prepare for breeding season, now is a good time to review your records from the previous kidding or lambing season. In order to have a good handle on some of your production practices, it is important to review your records on a regular basis. 
This includes not only financial records, but your production records for evaluating the sheep or goats in your herd as well. One of the most important indicators of profitability in a sheep or goat operation is the lambing and kidding percentage. There are a couple of figures to consider when figuring out this percentage. First, start with the number of offspring produced compared to the number of females that gave birth. Next, look at the number of live lambs or kids at birth, as well as the number of live lambs and kids a month after lambing or kidding, and then the number of live lambs or kids at weaning. Compare this to the number of ewes or does that lambed or kitted to calculate some percentages. Set a goal to wean a 200% lamb or kid crop, an average of twins, every year. Some years may not go ideally, but it is important that the does or ewes are producing twins on a regular basis in order to maintain profitability. You may also want to take a closer look at the death loss. A good goal is for the lamb or kid death loss to be 10% or less. Good mothering ability, good nutrition so that the lambs and kids are healthy and vigorous at birth, and good nutrition to support high quality and quantity of colostrum and milk are all important for producing lambs and kids that are more likely to survive to weaning age. Weaning weight records are a very good evaluation tool. Adjust the weights so that you can make a fair comparison between lambs and kids born as singles, twins, and triplets, as well as factoring in differences in the gender of the lamb or kid and the age of the doe or the ewe. Keep in mind that the highest weaning weights may not necessarily translate into profitability. Consider the frame size of those lambs or kids and their ability to thrive on pasture. Most production type operations focus on pasture as their main, if not sole source of nutrition for both mature females and replacement females. Each operation needs to consider what size you or doe best meets the nutritional resources on the farm as well as the markets where those sheep and goats are sold. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Your sense of sight is important for assessing the health of your plants, but sometimes it can be hard to notice problems until they are severe. Catching these problems early can be the difference between a long-living plant and a plant on death's door. Some problems can be easier to notice than others, and while the cause of the symptoms might not be immediately apparent, the symptoms present may signal that you need to take a closer look at your plants and scout them for the root of the problem. Stunting is one of the most obvious symptoms to see, especially when there are normal-sized plants nearby to compare against. Color is one other giveaway that something is wrong. Discoloration can identify death, physical damage from the environment or feeding, or nutrient deficiencies. For example, if you have white oaks, you might start noticing some small dieback of leaves near the tips of branches, but not know what's causing the problem. This is the result of feeding from an insect called Kermes scale, which are easier to notice on the twigs if you can get a close-up look at the branches showing these symptoms. 
This concept of scouting can be vital to ensuring the immediate health of the plant, especially if you can catch problems early. Typically, when plant experts talk about scouting plants, they are referring to looking for insects and insect damage. However, scouting can refer to looking for any symptom of a plant problem, or for insects that have not yet begun causing problems. Squash bugs are a great example of the merits of scouting. Squash bug eggs were laid about a month ago on the underside of zucchini leaves, and they are one of the most common pest questions I receive. Scouting for these eggs and removing them before they hatch will save you a lot of future headaches. Once the eggs hatch, the nymphs will begin to feed, and once the nymphs grow into adults, their feeding damage can be so severe that they will kill off zucchini plants outright. However, as adults, most insecticide sprays will be ineffective at killing the bugs, which is why you need to catch them early. Looking for eggs near the middle of June and pulling any off the plant will keep populations low and reduce the amount of spraying you will need to do to keep your vegetables healthy. Sometimes, though, you won't be able to catch bugs before they begin damaging your plants. The next step to scouting is to assess the level of damage and determine if the plant is in danger and how much damage is acceptable before control is warranted. The acceptable damage level will vary depending on the purpose of the plant. Ornamental plants grown for their looks will obviously have a lower damage threshold than other plants, since the feeding of insects quickly detracts from the plant's looks. For fruits and vegetables, damage to the non-edible parts of a plant will be more tolerable, especially if the edible part of the plant is already mostly grown. However, you may want to consider still trying to control the problem. Diseases and insects both reproduce and spread, so populations can still get out of hand even if the plant is relatively unaffected this year. Controlling now may be the best option to ensure that the problem is not worse in future growing seasons. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.